Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today, I'm talking to Nick Emfield about his book, The Anatomy of Meaning. The book presents a series of fieldwork studies of the use of gestures when accompanying speech, ranging from their role in conveying simple meanings to their application in descriptions of complex objects and events. In this interview, we focus on the implications of this work for linguistics in general and explore the idea that meaning should be considered as a composite product of speech and gesture. Today I'm talking to Nick Enfield about his book, The Anatomy of Meaning, which brings together a rich body of research on the interpretation of the combination of speech and gesture. Nick, how did you come to be focusing on this area? I came to be focusing on this area because I because I came to the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in Nijmegen, where I am now. And uh, at the time that I came here, which was in 2000, there was a project at the <clears throat> at the institute called the Gesture Project, and it was run by Sotaro Kita, who had been trained in Chicago with David McNeil, one of the most important people working on gesture from a kind of psycholinguistic point of view. So Kita had been trained uh, with uh, with David Neal, and he uh, had come to Nijmegen in the 90s to work in Steve Levinson's group and set up a uh, a project which involved a number of different uh, people, and uh, one of whom was uh, David Wilkins, who was a, a researcher of Australian languages and a sort of a, a linguist of a, of a similar bent to me. He was a fellow... Uh, student alongside Nick Evans, who was my PhD supervisor in Australia. So I had this kind of common background and uh, the connection to through David Wilkins to, uh, to, to Steve Levinson and his group got me interested in what they were doing in general at the, at the Max Planck Institute. Um, gesture wasn't the only part of it, but, uh, uh, but in my preparation to come over here and take up a postdoc in 2000, uh, you know, I started getting into the things that were happening o- over here. Uh, and I didn't really know much about gesture at the time. I was uh, trained as a linguist, uh, sort of from a anthropological perspective, interested in, in fieldwork. And uh, prior to that time, I hadn't used a video camera in the field. I, as a, as a, um, PhD student doing my fieldwork in Laos, I had, uh, used only audio recordings in the kind of standard way that I had been taught as a student. Uh, but I, I, I saw uh, the kind of work that people were doing uh, in gesture just from a, a distance, and it, it just seemed incredibly interesting to me. And uh, the first thing that uh, uh, that that happened that was critical was um, being given the equipment uh, and the sort of motivation to go and, and just sort of get my feet wet and try doing this kind of research. What happened was that uh, 
in 2000 when I was planning uh, or preparing to to come over here and take up this this job. Um, uh, just before I came, I was teaching a course at the Australian Linguistic Institute on Southeast Asian languages, and as it happened, uh, Kita uh, happened to be also giving a course, uh, giving a course on his on his gesture work and on the other gesture work that was happening at the at the uh, Max Planck Institute here. And so that was where we first met, and Kiza brought with him to Australia, to Melbourne, uh, this giant suitcase that was full of uh, equipment from from the institute that had been sort of packed up for me uh, to take to the field. The plan was that I would go from Australia, I would go to Laos to, to do field work, um, and then I would carry on uh, to come here to, to Nijmegen, which is exactly what I did. So really, you know, the kind of an original impetus was just sort of being motivated to to work with video material because it seemed like, you know, an obvious thing to do. And at the time, I didn't really have training. All I had was, you know, interest and sort of excitement about what I was seeing in the work uh, that Kita showed at that time. So I, I, I had the equipment. I had also the sort of field manuals, uh, that described the techniques and some of the studies that uh, that people were interested in, and, and indeed that I later talk about in the in the book. When I arrived in Nijmegen for the first time here at the at the institute, I had all of these recordings that I had kind of uh, uh, video recordings that I had made in the field in Laos, um, sort of following instructions that I'd been given in the field manuals without you know very. Uh, fairly naively kind of recording this stuff and I had the good fortune of spending several months on first arriving uh, sitting down one-to-one and working with Kita and other people who were here, um, JP Dorata among others, and really just getting trained up by them uh, in, a, in a really um, great environment here and uh, quickly learnt uh, from them about what interesting questions were and the interesting issues were and and essentially you know as soon as you collect video recordings of people speaking a language that you've been working on you suddenly see all of these things which are uh, just incredibly interesting and um uh, and inspiring to work on so so that was kind of where it all started and uh from that point on I was involved in uh uh, you know, a research environment where there were people who, who had a, a sort of much deeper background in gesture than I had. And so I got a sort of uh, a fast track, if you like, to um, to getting trained up on, on what the issues uh, were all about. And that, that was from from 2000. And so from then on, every year, uh, I would, you know, I'd be back in the field and we'd be pursuing different research projects that had come out of uh, the kinds of things that... Um, uh, that we were working on together here at the Institute. Uh, you mentioned that the your interest in Lao language and culture goes back from, from before the time you were working on gesture. Yeah, of course. Um, my interest in Lao goes back a very long way. It goes back to before I finished my undergraduate studies. I did an undergraduate degree in Asian studies in Canberra at the Australian National University. I was really interested in linguistics and languages, um, but I was within this Asian studies faculty, and there they have a system where they send a lot of people off for a year. They call it the Year in Asia program. I don't know if it still exists today, but that's what they used to have. And the uh, students who were, these were mostly people interested in, you know, uh, becoming diplomats and business people and so forth, would, would be studying Japanese or Indonesian or you know, Chinese, and they would go off in the middle of their undergraduate program, they'd go off for a year to live in the country that they're studying and to study the language intensively. And uh, they had these big programs in places like Japan and China and Indonesia where you could, uh, you know, big groups of students would go, dozens of students sort of all together. And I, uh, for various reasons, I was more interested in uh, going to somewhere that was not where everybody else was going. And uh, I I got interested in uh, in Laos, so I had I happened to have travelled in that area a bit, um, kind of straight out of school, and uh, I was I was interested in it. So 
one thing led to another, and I, I had been studying Thai at the university. Thai and Lao are very closely uh, related languages, and um, so uh, Lao seemed like an interesting option for me. One thing led to another, and I eventually got accepted into the University um, of Laos as a foreign student, and this was uh, in 1990, so that's uh, uh, well over 20 years ago now. And I went there for a year, which was actually fairly early in my undergraduate uh, time. So by the time I finished my honours degree, which was 94, I'd already spent nearly two years actually living in Laos. So I, you know, I went there as a as a foreign student and then stayed on for about another half a year, just sort of working uh, and, and so on, using the language. So um, that's what really kind of got a, a, a foothold uh, into the into the country. And I, at the time, I, I wasn't even sure that I was going to get into scientific research. It's, um, it's a long time ago, but I did continue with it. And uh, so the result of that was that all of the research work that I did for my honours degree and then later for my PhD was uh, based in Laos and uh, based on uh, on the Lao language. So the, the PhD work was really most of my time was spent inside Laos working working with Lao and other languages in Laos. Now turning to a book, the fieldwork, the gesture fieldwork that you discuss is uh, conducted in that setting. My impression is that uh, Lao is not a particularly exotic example of of gestural systems, would that be fair to say that it's it's in some sense you think possibly reasonably typical language in what in respect of what it does? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, the the answer is we don't know very much about the diversity of gesture across the languages of the world. We do know something. There have been uh, there's a nice uh, review article by. Uh, my former colleague Kita about um, you know what we know from the literature about the sort of cultural differences in gesture systems, but uh, to be honest, it's 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 not very much. Um, and the reason is simply that uh, you know the field of gesture studies as a kind of systematic way of looking at uh, a gesture is quite young, and um, it depends quite a lot on recent ideas, recent approaches, and especially recent uh, research methods like the possibility of, of good quality video recordings and, uh, and, and you know, the kinds of computer programs that we use for annotation of gestures and that kind of thing. It, it was a much more of a challenge to study these things earlier on. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can create a writing system for and so on. And so the history uh, that we've had for the research on linguistics uh, it's just not there for for, for gesture uh, so the, the sort of first answer to your question is that um, uh, we don't really have enough information to know what would be an exotic system in sort of gesture uh, and, and what would be a not exotic system in, in gesture and in fact I think that uh, Part of what we do know about gesture now, and I think this, you know, from my own work, I, I suspect that this is going to be the case, is that gesture systems are not going to vary across cultures nearly as much as linguistic systems will. They will vary in some very obvious ways. So, you know, I've, I've just said that and, and uh, you might be thinking, well, what are you talking about? We know all this, you know, stuff about uh, a peace sign in one country is, is a good thing. It's a good sign, but in another country it means something rude and, you know, all of these kinds of um, hand signs like V for victory and so forth. Uh, that's uh, that's one area where you will get variation across cultures and, and gestures, but that's actually a very small part of what people study when they're studying gesture. And, in fact, the you know, this recent sort of field of work on gestures that I've been involved in, really doesn't look very much at those kinds of gestures like peace sign and thumbs up and middle finger and this kind of thing. When we look at gestures that are associated, sort of produced while talking, uh, that are not really reflexive and so forth, I think that those gestures are not going to vary radically across uh, across uh, linguistic and cultural con contexts. 
but of course it's an empirical question just as to how much they vary and one of the reasons uh for writing my book was really um as i'm sure i try to say in the early sections is really to uh contribute to the basic kind of empirical project of putting some descriptive work out there so time will tell whether flow is a is different to what we find in in a lot of other uh, uh, cultures or not. Taking up the point of the descriptive systems being relatively new, is it difficult or is it is it something that you sort of find yourself trying to pioneer to explain a gestural system cross-linguistically in words? Yeah, it, it is difficult. Uh, it is... Um, that's why we have to use diagrams all the time in books and articles that are about gesture, um, precisely because, um, you know, it's a, it, that's the very nature of gesture, uh, is that most of the time what it's doing is inviting you to, to look at a, 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 at a hand shape or a hand movement or look at something that's being indicated in the context. And the people who are producing these gestures have specifically chosen uh, not to use words for doing, you know, for expressing what they're trying to express. Um, they have words. They, you know, in principle, they could have chosen words to say whatever it is that they're trying to say, but they didn't. And one of the reasons is because, well, it's so much harder uh, to describe. You know, we have the classic kind of parlor games, like trying to, you know, describe a spiral staircase without using gestures and this kind of thing. I mean, it, it's just... Uh, the thing about the, the gestural system is that it lends itself well to certain kinds of meaning uh, and not to other kinds of meaning, and, and that's precisely where you see it uh, uh, getting used. And, and, and that is to say uh, where words kind of don't do so well. So when you're in the position of trying to describe what's going on with these gestures from an, you know, as, a, as, a, as an analyst, then uh, you're faced with exactly this problem. And what you really, or all you can do is try to sort of depict what the people are doing using uh, illustrations, stills from the video, or some sort of, you know, uh, line drawing that's that's drawn from that um, with some description about the manner of, of motion and, uh, uh, and things of that sort. You, you know, the, the description is fairly formal, just describing what is the sort of behavior uh, and um, and then of course uh, what we try to do in the description is, is talk about the meaning as well. And that, that for that, of course, you are then drawing on uh, the words that the people are, are using as well. So part of the answer to the question is that we, and it's sort of really one of the points of the book is that we don't, when we describe gestures, we're not just describing hand movements. What we're describing is. Uh, some contribution to an overall utterance meaning that the person is, is trying to convey. Uh, and typically the gesture will be just a part of that. So you're drawing not only on the gesture to make sense of the gesture, you draw also on the uh, accompanying speech and other aspects of, of the context, including, you know, what, what just happened and so forth. This takes us very neatly to the uh, first chapter of your book, where you discuss the nature of meaning and what defines utterances, uh, and you state an opposition to the approach that uh, that detaches language a priori from gesture for the purposes of analysis. Do you feel there's a widespread misunderstanding in the linguistics literature about the nature of gesture and maybe even of meaning in that system? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, misunderstanding is not quite the right word because I think it's more just non-understanding. Uh, misunderstanding implies that, you know, people have some understanding of gesture and, and it's wrong. But I think basically, you know, in linguistics, most people really have very little idea about what gesture is like and how it combines with the linguistic component of utterances to, to convey meanings. It's a kind of a radical step in the mind of a linguist to really appreciate what gestures are doing in relation to language and um, I think there's an intuitive sense just as a user of language that you know words and gestures are really very distinct from each other um, and maybe that is a bit of a culture specific understanding what I mean is that 
that sense of really distinguishing between words and and things you do with your body when you're talking um one really strong kind of motivator for that distinction conceptually is literacy and of course you know we're, we're all highly literate and we're using the written word all the time uh, but of course also the history of linguistics is based on uh, the written word and 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 so forth until uh, relatively recently, and all of that really pushes us not to consider all of the stuff that happens alongside of the uh, uh, the spoken component. Uh, you know, I can't put myself into the head of someone who doesn't know how to read or who hasn't had this kind of training and background, so it's hard to uh, to really know what it's like um, to to not to not have a sort of literacy uh, bias. But I think that in, in that's one sort of strong thing. The, the other strong thing is simply that people have not studied gestures in linguistics, and so you know uh, linguists don't really have a strong opinion. Uh, and I I feel that it's a shame, and it's sort of noticeable that the the, the gesture research um, tradition, which is now kind of getting on in age, it's really quite developed now. Uh, has still not made a dent really in linguistics sort of seriously. It's certainly made a dent in some parts. It's been it's had an interesting effect on some aspects of linguistics like cognitive linguistics. And a lot of cognitive linguistics are sort of taking gesture more seriously. And others who are interested in the psychology of language, I mean psychologists, psycholinguists and so forth, are, are certainly much more serious about thinking about gesture uh, but real kind of card-carrying linguists as such, people who write grammars or people who worry about standard linguistic questions, are uh, I don't think they really have much of an opinion about gesture, to be honest. Is it something that you think would motivate a paradigm shift of some kind in uh, that sort of core linguistics tradition to consider another uh, another medium which is also conveying similar or related messages? Yes, I think it is. I think a paradigm shift is, uh, you know, well, I think, personally, I think a paradigm shift is desired, um, but I also think it's necessary um, when you really pay attention to uh, to gesture and its and its contribution. And the shift is from thinking about as something that kind of is added on to language to thinking about, you know, the bits of communication that we think of as language as being an inherent part of something that's 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 richer. And so when we talk about language in more traditional linguistic senses, we're talking about something that's been that's really a part of the whole that we should be studying. In the first chapter you uh, you introduce a new term enchronic to describe the perspective that you adopt on language as a dynamic moment by moment process. Yeah. Um, how does that differ from other modes of analysis? Well, anchronic perspective is one that I think is not really on the map in linguistics particularly. Um, uh, we're all familiar in linguistics with the distinction between synchronic and diachronic perspectives on language. That's one that gets taught to us in Linguistics 101. Uh, and so... Um, you know, that's we're all sort of au fait with that. And, and when you talk to linguists about what they think uh, these two words mean, um, you find that uh, most people tend to agree on what diachronic refers to. It refers to the, uh, uh, the history of languages and the processes by which languages change and therefore the processes that create the products that we describe in grammars and so on. And uh, the synchronic uh, frame is sort of, you know, not that, uh, you know, somehow language without time into the equation. Um, but when you sort of press on that, when you hear people use the word synchronic, you see that sometimes they use it to refer to the sort of truly non-temporal set of relations among all the structures of a language that you might find written up in a grammar or corresponding to the kind of set of mental representations that someone might have. Um, I think that's a pretty good uh, notion of the of the term synchronic. 
but then you see other people using it to refer to things that are sort of simply, they're not historical, but they're still temporal. So that might include things like um, processes of production or comprehension of language, uh, the kinds of, you know, corner cutting, for example, in processing that might lead to uh, changes in language over time. Um, and I think there's a problem with um, using uh, the word synchronic for that for those kind of processes precisely because they're processes. So um, I've kind of been thinking quite a lot about this uh, problem, and that's, in a, that's one of the reasons why I felt it necessary to have a term that sort of brought this out. Um, and uh, in this book, uh, I introduced this term, Anchronic, and uh, more recently I've been also uh, distinguishing that from microgenetic. That's something a little bit like a term that, uh, uh, that David McNeil has been using. He also is very much focused on the kind of dynamic processual aspects of language. So what I've uh, been doing recently to sort of make it, I think, a little bit sharper even than it is current in, in the book that we're discussing now, um, is to distinguish between microgenetic processes of language, that is the sort of production time and comprehension time of language, that's the, the processes that take place in individuals when we're using language. And enchronic is subtly different, but it's significantly different. Um, the enchronic uh, viewpoint uh, is a reasonably similar time scale, but the causal uh, processes we're talking about are quite different. So the enchronic um, frame uh, of language really looks at uh, the unit of analysis is the utterance in a interaction. Uh, so if we're focusing on an enchronic context, we're focusing on the relations between utterances. Um, for example, you know, I ask you a question, well, we could examine the sort of grammatical structure of the question and the processing of the question. Uh, but from an anchronic frame, we're looking at things like uh, what should happen in the next slot after I ask a question. Well, you know, whatever comes next is going to have to be a response. Uh, if it's not a response, the person um, who was asked the question is going to be somehow accountable to not having produced a response and so forth. These are issues that immediately bring out the more social interactional uh, aspects of language. And in this book, I didn't concentrate on those uh, so heavily, but I wanted to stress that uh, framework because the key point being because the real puzzle for figuring out what utterances are and how they work is to figure out what does someone do when they're in the next position, if you like. They're trying to understand what a person is saying and how I'm supposed to respond to this. So it's really a, an attempt to sort of uh, put a more dynamic and a more social frame around the thing that we're uh, looking at in linguistics, and the reason is because it's an inherently dynamic and an inherently social system. One further uh, technical point I'd like to ask about is that uh, you adopt the semiotic distinction between various different kinds of uh, sign relations, I suppose one might say, iconic indexical and symbolic relations. Uh, and you describe right. these categories as crucial yet widely mishandled. I wonder if you could elaborate on that point. Well, um, yeah, there's ultimately there's a lot to say about this issue. These words, iconic, indexical, and symbolic, are used um, in so many different ways it's not funny. Uh, so that's the first kind of problem with them is that, you know, you never quite know uh, what a person means when they say iconic, for example. So that would be one uh, sort of bit of mishandling is using a word like iconic is a good example. People will use it to refer to uh, things which are not only iconic, but also indexical. So I think I give the example. Oh, we could take a lot of examples, but. Uh, one might be there's a, there's a sign in American Sign Language that means old, uh, and uh, the way that you do the sign is it's as if you're sort of stroking a, a goatee, as if you're stroking a kind of beard on your chin. And people say it's iconic of old. Well, iconic is supposed to be where the sign has some resemblance to the thing that it stands for. The sign itself has qualities in common with the thing that it's being taken to, to stand for. Um, 
And the, what the, this sign has, has in common is the action of stroking uh, a beard on your chin. And then uh, to really get to the meaning of old, uh, what you're then working from are indexical relations that somehow, you know, the beard is associated with an old person and the old person is associated with the quality of being old, and etc. So, you know, I, I think one sort of basic mishandling of these kinds of uh, terms is simply throwing together uh, quite clearly distinct uh, ideas uh, uh, conceptually uh, the iconic relation and the indexical relation being completely distinct, but very often in reality, very often, almost always kind of bound up with each other. Uh, so it's no wonder that people mix them together because they're mixed together in the uh, in the phenomena we're trying to describe. But that, of course, isn't a reason to to uh, not keep them um, conceptually distinct. As for symbolic, this is uh, you know perhaps even worse than the others. Uh, uh, because it's just used much more widely and, you know, symbol, symbolic has all of these different meanings in the regular use of the language um, and in various different kinds of uh, literature. But one, I think, very basic way in which the symbolic is very commonly uh, defined, which I think is not quite accurate uh, and it does make a difference, is that um, it's defined in a sort of negative sense that people will say, well, you know, iconic an iconic semiotic relation is when the sign has qualities in common with what it stands for. An indexical relation will be when, you know, the sign is somehow connected to uh, what it stands for. And a symbolic is neither of those two. So it's often sort of defined in a, in a negative sense. But that is, that is true, but it's not quite the whole story. And the key thing is that with a symbolic relation, um, there is a, a not just a negative reason why the sign is taken to stand for the object. There has to be some positive cause for that, and the cause for that is that uh, that's what people in this community do. Uh, and one of the points about gesture is that, apart from the kinds of gestures, the peace signs and so on I was talking about before, it's uh, most of the time gestures are getting their meaning not, uh, not through the symbolic kind of uh, semiotic um, relation. So, uh, you know, that's what I that's what I mean by by sort of uh, uh, widely used but not always uh, handled very well. Is simply that they're they're being used in too many different ways and not being carefully teased apart from each other when it matters. But you think fundamentally these distinctions are analytically useful? Yeah, I think they're uh, they're analytically useful for sure. But I think they're more than that. I think they're essential. You know, because they're related to each other in very specific ways. Um, the technical sort of apparatus of, uh, of of semiotics is something we can't really go into here now. But you know, simply sort of iconic, an iconic relation is something that's based in qualities of things, and it's uh, you know, it, it's something that everything else is built up on, and and it's incorporated into indexical relations, and those in turn are incorporated into symbolic relations. There's a a quite clear kind of semiotic theory which shows how these things are incorporated within each other. They're, they're quite distinct. So I'm, I'm not advocating not using them. I'm, I'm certainly advocating using them, but using them uh, in a way that's consistent and in a way that's, uh, you know, co useful, correct according to the uh, to what we know about, about these relations. Sure. Turning to the actual fieldwork in the book, uh, you look first at demonstratives, um, and this serves to illustrate what you call the way in which uh, human interaction transforms merely physical space into meaningful space. Well, the key point that I wanted to make there was that um, physical space, I mean, that term really is trying to capture the idea that there's an objective reality and we can measure it in objective ways so we can take a tape measure and we can measure out how far, you know, I'm standing from a particular object. And uh, these would be, we could give, give descriptions that were purely physical. You know, we could weigh the objects and, and these kinds of things. Uh, but uh, the point uh, that I was making in that chapter was that um, knowing those things would not allow you to predict uh, the ways in which people use these uh, distinctions that they've got in, in their language for 
uh, talking about objects in their physical space and, and, and locating them and so on. It's an analytic problem with demonstratives. Uh, they're difficult to study and they're a decent, you know, they're good intuitions about how they're used and the basic, you know, intuition that you'll see in, in grammars and descriptions is, well, you know, there's two terms here. One of them, let's say in English, this is used for things that are close to me and that is used for things that are far away. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you if you get more curious and you really want to know what that means, you quickly realize that, uh, you know, these sort of near and far uh can't be defined in an objective sort of way that has to do with measuring out uh, the physical space. And I guess the key point is that is that you know, like everything else in language, it's uh, quite an anthropocentric sort of system. The ways in which it works uh, depends completely on the perspective that the users uh, are taking. So that was the kind of distinction I was trying to make is that if you think about space as physical space, that's to check, to take a sort of an objective stance on it. It can be measured out. Uh, but, but that's not how the system works. The system works based on things like how, um, the physical space becomes divided up in, in terms of sort of the access that we have to it as defined by our social activities. So I have in the chapter, um, quite a lot of discussion of examples that were taken from recordings in a marketplace. And a, a marketplace is an excellent kind of uh, place to study this kind of thing because you've got a very small uh, physical space that's kind of chopped up into all these little squares where people are the owners of these little squares where they've got their goods that they're trying to sell. And there's a whole lot of exchange going on and people trying to locate objects so that they can buy them and sell them and, uh, and, and this kind of thing. And so if something happens to be quite close to me, but it's on somebody else's uh, little market stall and it doesn't belong to me, uh, there's a, a sort of a virtual barrier, not a physical barrier between me and the next person's stall, but a virtual barrier, which is uh, built out of... Uh, Issues that, that you couldn't see from the outside. You have to know what's going on inter, interpersonally with these people. You have to know things like, um, you know, I'm the owner of these objects here and you're the owner of those objects which are right next to me. And being the owner of things, you know, in, involves certain rights and duties and this kind of thing, uh, which are entirely social and they're completely grounded in the, in the agreements that we all have about the meanings of things in our uh, in our environment, and they're the kinds of things that you couldn't uh, that you couldn't sort of measure objectively. So you could compare them to things like social reality in general, um, in the sense that uh, that that John Searle and many others have written so much about, which points out things like you know take money. Uh, his Searle's example is is, is often. Uh, you know, pull out a, a, a bill, you know, you've got a 20-pound note or something in your pocket. Well, from a sort of physical physical point of view, it's just a piece of paper, right? Uh, you know, if you put fire on it, it will burn, etc. Um, but you can't eat it. Uh, well, you can turn it into something you can eat only through the fact that we've got a sort of a, a, a social system that we all agree uh, is, you know, to... That, that, that this piece of paper will be worth 20 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. The same principle applies to uh, the physical spaces that we inhabit because we agree to sort of treat them in certain ways, uh, you know, that acknowledge things like uh, the access that we have to the space around us, whether that's determined by physical facts, like that, that place is hard for me to reach or, or I can't see what's in that place, or whether it's determined by these kinds of... Um, let's say, more normative uh, aspects of things like ownership over the space and so forth. But it uh, must be quite a daunting challenge to try and characterise the meaning of even something as simple as this or here, uh, when you consider all the many kinds of sort of psychological manifestations that we can impose on the environment around us. Very daunting. Something like this. Uh, it's a deceptively simple system. It looks simple, is what I mean. Uh, but it's very complex in terms of how people use these systems. Just like in English, where you've got just these two little words, this and that, um, and there's an awful lot uh, involved. 
basically, the answer is it's daunting, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Uh, and one has to go at this in order to sort of try to make some um, some headway. Uh, this some nice experimental work over the years, uh, thinking of the word Clark site in the book. Uh, he found some ways in which you could study things like, you know, how does a word like this actually work? Um, so he, he did these uh, experiments on the campus of Stanford University where you would uh, take a, a photograph um, and uh, let's say the photograph had, um, you know, 10 flowers on it and you would take this photo, walk up to a student uh, who was walking across the campus and you'd say, uh, excuse me, do you know what is this flower or something? I can't remember the exact question, but you would refer to this flower. And um, there were two kinds of conditions. One was that you would have uh, in the picture there'd be, in both pictures there'd be 10 flowers, but in one of the pictures there'd be one big flower right in the center of the picture. And in the other picture, there wouldn't be any one single prominent flower. And as predicted, when there's one single prominent uh, possible referent, people don't have any trouble with this whatsoever. But in the other condition, it's, it's, uh, it was difficult. So it seems like a sort of trivial demonstration in a way, but it was actually an important uh, demonstration of um, a simple fact that you can you can think up ways to kind of control uh, these uh, these these systems and test how people can use them. Uh, I was interested in looking at them more in the wild, and that just comes from. I mean, I'm not an experimental psychologist. I think the work uh, that they're doing is terrifically useful, and it's very important to uh, connect it with the kind of work that um, I do, and that those colleagues of mine who do the same sort of work as me do. Uh, so I was simply interested in trying to get a, a real sense of what these kinds of systems were doing when you look at them in the wild. And, you know, my experience is that uh, linguists will, uh, with all the best intentions, they'll talk about their experience with um, these kinds of systems uh, from observation. It's very hard to make good observations about these things uh, on the fly. Uh, some people are really good at it. Um, Bill Hanks's work is pretty special in this respect. He uh, uh, did a, a terrific, very, very uh, important book in linguistic anthropology called Referential Practice, where he uh, looked at how these demonstrative systems were used um, among Yucatec Mayans, uh, and he, he he was able to show a lot of um, ways in which these little words are. Uh, a very important sort of socially, socially, interactionally, psychologically. Uh, and perhaps I'd be more daunted if I was trying to do the kind of thing that, that Bill Hanks did. Uh, but uh, it certainly makes it a lot less daunting if you have a video camera in your hand uh, because you can, you know, once you've collected your data, you can sit down and, and uh, you know, you can repeat the data. You don't have to uh, just note down on the fly what you've seen. You're able to go back to it. You're able to study uh, the kind of, um, you know, the structure the interaction, the kinds of things that are going on in the context and build a case. All of the kind of work that, uh, that I'm talking about in this book um, is really based on kind of building collections of examples that are comparable in some way and where you can come back to these cases and review them uh, with the video materials. So I think once you've got good data, it's much less daunting than you would think, and it's like any other sort of procedure in, in – um, you know, empirical linguistics is that you collect a corpus and you work through and you try to account for what you've uh, got in, in the corpus. I think for those people who are considering this sort of work, probably the most daunting part about it is actually getting over the reticence that that many people have to pull out the video camera and point it at people and collect the data in the very first place. That's actually pretty daunting for a lot of people. But once you get over that, then... Uh, uh, you know, it's not so uh, it's not so daunting at all, and uh, there's it's actually incredibly fun. I'd like to spin on, if I may, to the to the following two chapters deal with um, various aspects of pointing behaviours. The second part of that, while well, dealing with uh, hand pointing, uh, you distinguish big and small gestures which interface differently with speech. Um, is that the basis for quite a clear dichotomy? Well. In that paper, which was uh, 
reports on a study that I did together with my colleagues Satara Kita and Jan Peter Derauta. Uh, in that paper, we did argue. Um, it was earlier published as a as a research article, and uh, and I included it in the book with revisions. Um, the claim is that there is a distinction between the large pointing gestures that had a certain kind of function, small pointing gestures that had a certain kind of function, and it may seem that you know big versus small are clearly going to be uh, extremes on a, a certain continuum. So how could you sort of have a cutoff point in the middle? Um, well, uh, of course, big versus small is simply a formal description, and um, uh, you know there was a more of a technical term that was used uh, in the chapter itself to really capture not just kind of I mean. The claim is certainly that there are physical, describable properties of these gestures that make them different. But going back to a point that we discussed earlier on, uh, you can never characterize a gesture simply by its uh, form or its shape or itself. Part of the very definition of what a gesture is and how it works in the way it does is um, is how it relates to what's being uh, said. So uh, the point of that chapter was to really sort of explicate uh, a distinction with that and, and the basic distinction was that uh, well let's uh, backtrack for a second in both cases you've got the person using some speech and doing a pointing gesture at the same time so that's that's what's common between them people are producing utterances while doing a pointing gesture at the same time the difference is Essentially, which part of this composite utterance, the utterance that involves speech plus gesture together, which part of it is kind of foregrounded in a particular way? With the large pointing gestures, the thing that's foregrounded is the locational information that's being given by the gesture. So really, those gestures are in utterances where the point of the utterance is to tell you where something is. Uh, I might be, you might have just asked me a question, where's where's John's house, and then I will sort of do a, a large pointing gesture. My whole arm will be uh, will be sort of extended, and often I'll look also in that direction. Uh, but the, the other gestures that we uh, refer to as these S points, or these small size pointing gestures, the spatial information in the gesture is very much backgrounded, uh, and it has a, a, a very particular... Uh, sort of informational function, but it's very uh, much backgrounded in terms of the overall function of the utterance. Uh, so they're really fundamentally different contributions being made by these two kinds of pointing to the overall utterance meaning. In the second part of the book, you turn to the topic of illustrative components of moves, uh, and you discuss the very sophisticated way in which the speaker uses the space in front of them. For example, the way they might designate a hand to represent a, a physical object. Looking back at the, uh, the video transcripts of these recordings, were you, were you surprised by the complexity of some of these gestures under close scrutiny? Looking back at the recordings of these, I was very surprised by how sophisticated these gesture sequences. Um, you know, that, this was at a time sort of uh, really doing the original work, so I uh, had not appreciated up to that point uh, just how uh, complex these uh, these gesture sequences were going to be. And, and I suppose what I appreciated the least was, in fact, how they were constructed in a sequential kind of way. So often when we think about gestures, if we're not thinking about the kind of peace sign type uh, gestures, we're thinking about gesticulations, which just sort of are attached to single utterances or single moves, some sort of emphasis of what I'm saying, or maybe just showing you the shape of something or the size. Uh, in these sequences, um, for example, the sequences I um, examine about the uh, uh, the descriptions of these fish traps or of these uh, kind of sets of kinship relations, what you see is a step-by-step people building up these images uh, Concrete images or you know abstract representations of, of information, um, which are which are really quite complex. And uh, there's no choice for the speaker but to build up these representations in a linear way. Uh, one of the key points that I try to make there is that uh, uh, we all know that the spoken word forces us to linearize, uh, you know, to to bring out the information step by step. Um, 
And if we think about gesture, we, we might think, well, gesture is kind of, you've got two hands, you've got three dimensions, you're much less likely to have to sort of chunk uh, what you want to say. But indeed, what I uh, found in these kind of um, descriptions people were making of, of, of complex ideas, uh, exactly what they had to do, they really had to uh, uh, re- relay the information out piece by piece. And what I discovered, uh, uh, for example, in the chapter on fish traps was that uh, they follow quite um, distinct principles to, to do that by, you know, firstly, for example, by establishing the overall shape of the object um, and then uh, sort of filling in the details after that. And I think that's uh, probably something that you can expect. You, you, you asked earlier on about, you know, whether Lao speakers were doing gestures that were particularly exotic or not. I don't think there's anything exotic about this way of uh, setting up a kind of a complex description of an object. Um, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone from any culture who would not obey uh, those kind of basic informational principles when they're describing something like a complex um, uh, object. So I think these kind of complex, these kind of, Behaviors are very complex, but I think that they emerge in very natural ways. Uh, so they're quite different from grammar in the sense that they're probably uh, needing to be learned uh, in the same way that sort of one needs to learn how to construct a relative clause in, in one language in a different way from how you would do it in another language. In the conclusion of your book, you talk about the desirability of uh, some kind of semiotic unification. Uh, but you also raised some of the issues that are problematic in the treatment of gesture and bringing gesture into that uh, that process, that system. Uh, for instance, identifying where a gesture begins and ends. Um, what, in your view, are the are the greatest challenges standing in the way of a truly integrated model of speech and gesture? Okay, I'm, I'm pausing here because it's such a tough question. Um, let me just think. I mean... I think that um, one of the biggest problems is simply to really sort of have a, as you put it earlier on, a paradigm shift. You know, nobody really wants to face up to the need for a paradigm shift because it forces you to do everything in a new way. It forces you to suddenly see what you've done before um, as being somehow inadequate. You know, so this is why. Uh, paradigm shifts are so difficult to bring about because people have made a, a great investment in in the way that they do research into one kind of paradigm or general way of looking at things. Uh, and so basically, I think that when it comes to gesture, that if you see uh, gesture as having a really important role in utterance construction, suddenly you start to entertain possibilities like, you know, maybe gesture can have something like grammar uh, maybe language can't really be properly described without looking at gesture, these kinds of things. Um, uh, and if one talks to a professional linguist in this way, uh, some people might be enthusiastic about it, but I think a lot of people, their first reaction would be, well, do I really need to think about that? Does that is that really going to affect the way that I do you know, what I do? Most people uh, would, would I think, their first reaction would be to say, well, probably not. I can still talk about my relative clauses without worrying about uh, about gesture. And I think that's the biggest challenge is to kind of push through that because uh, I actually think the answer is yes. Uh, looking at gesture in a serious way will uh, ultimately will um, or should uh, change the way we think about uh, doing language. Um, I don't know what it would look like yet, though. I mean, my feeling is that um, that gestures are associated with language in very systematic ways, or associated with you know the spoken word and grammatical constructions and so on in, in systematic ways. And what it's going to take is uh, linguists thinking in imaginative ways uh, about how we can describe these systematic relations between uh, gestures. Uh, and grammar, and they need to be imaginative because these things aren't being taught. As linguists, we get taught, you know, uh, the results of these decades and centuries of, of fantastic work on, on, on grammar and so forth, and so we, we have all the tools, and uh, essentially we're doing things like collecting new data, uh, tweaking all of the ideas that we've, you know, been passed on in, in, in linguistics. But uh, to really sort of integrate gesture into that, 
the tools just aren't there. So we people to be kind of very bold and try to really work on projects that will uh, that will will start to break those boundaries down. So one such project would be, you know, what would a grammatical construction look like if we were to uh, incorporate uh, the hand gestures that people are using into that construction? How would we actually uh, describe that as a whole? You know, could we imagine a grammar of a language where the gestures are treated, you know, sort of equally to uh, the 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 other aspects of the sort of combinatoric principles of the overall system, bit of kind of um, shift of attitude really, and uh, perhaps kind of youthful uh, exuberance and uh, lack of kind of constraints will really start to 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 push things forward. I think there's another line of work which also will help to really. Get us to understand that the, the importance of, of, of gestures' role in language, and that is to get uh, the new wave of sign language research uh, together with uh, with the gesture research. And that's happening. I, I mentioned in the book sign language at uh, several points, and um, in sign language literature, there is increasingly an interest in the uh, gesture literature and um, what what's happening is that not only are you know a sort of a, a group of linguists starting to see that gestures changing the way they should think about language uh, also sign linguists are, are having that same realization because they're seeing uh, you know that that the kind of proper unit of analysis of, of spoken language uh, has an interesting comparability to the sign language situation in that, uh, you know, people who use spoken language also use their faces and their hands and their bodies to construct utterances. And uh, previously, you know, there'd been this very strong kind of distinction between sign language and spoken language where people, I mean, you can see this all through the literature, people constantly will say, well, sign language is different from spoken language because in sign language you have the use of your hands and your face and your body and so on um, and when you kind of make that shift uh, to looking at gesture in relation to spoken language you say well hang on a second you know people who speak uh, English or Lao also have their hands in their faces and their bodies and so on um, so what we're seeing then is is interested uh, sign language linguists and sort of interested gesture people coming together and saying, okay, this is interesting. Um, maybe we can rethink how we compare uh, the sign language systems with the, with the spoken language systems and see, you know, whether that will change the way we think about um, uh, about language. Because, of course, the, the, the sign language linguistics, I mean, you've been asking about gesture impact on linguistics. I think all for some partly for similar reasons uh, to gesture, the sign language, the findings of sign language linguistics, although they've been extensive, continue to to, to grow, um, have had surprisingly little impact on linguistics uh, uh, generally. It does sound as though there are many uh, many fascinating strands of this work now in your own research. Uh, do you find yourself? Orienting more towards uh, theoretical developments or continuing uh, with a fieldwork-based uh, approach? Well, I'm following a combination of those two, which I think is uh, absolutely essential. I think that um, you know, theoretical work is, is is indispensable, and empirical work is indispensable uh, because the two things um, feed each other in crucial ways. I uh, am committed to doing field work and I continue to go to the field every year um, for at least some period of time. Uh, and that to me is, you know, it's it's fun, it's very gratifying, it keeps one's, uh, uh, you know, one sort of down to, to earth. Um, and I think it's important to be able uh, uh, to do the empirical work when one's thinking about uh, theoretical questions and, uh 
uh, vice versa. I mean, you want to be, a, if you're doing empirical work, you want to be somehow guided by theoretical issues. Uh, if you're doing theoretical work, you want to be somehow grounded by, uh, by empirical work and, and, and field work. And to me, that's, it's, it's just really important to, uh, do those two things, um, together. Of course, field work doesn't mean that you have to go, uh, you know, um, another country from where you live or anything like that. I could just as well do this work, um, you know, anywhere in my, uh, in my neighborhood, the fieldwork component of it. So, um, you know, the, the issue of sort of travel or something like that is not the issue. But, uh, you know, my, my view of the way in which we should do work goes sort of back to the traditions of, um, you know, the naturalists, if you like. You know, uh, Darwin, who's uh, presumably one of the theoreticians of science, uh, was also an incredibly dedicated and accomplished field worker and wrote uh you know made amazing contributions to to, to good old uh descriptive um biology and uh i think it's uh you know i i have a lot of respect for the people who uh who continue to do that sort of thing so i'm thinking of my uh senior colleagues people like steve levinson and nick evans who uh you know who i really sort of uh you know, I think owe this stance to um, quite a lot. Or, or I mentioned uh, Bill Hanks earlier on. I think it's critical to maintain both. And I wish you every success in doing so in your in your future work. At the moment, thank let me say, Nick Enfield, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. I've been talking to Nick Enfield about his book, The Anatomy of Meaning. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.